I'm Dan Kendall, and you're listening to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. Did you know that this is just one of the many shows that we create? In fact, from original podcasts like this one, to patient and professional educational content, to digital marketing, and even podcast advertising, we do a lot more than simply host conversations. We're mission-based media. Visit our website to learn more at missionbasedmedia.com. Welcome to Digital Health Today, Asia-Pacific Edition, your go-to podcast to learn about the transformation of healthcare in a region with over 4.5 billion people across more than 40 countries. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. My guest today is Silvana Sinha, the CEO and founder of Prava Health. Her experience in international law, health policy, and now as founder and entrepreneur are incredibly helpful to have an insightful discussion on the challenge of establishing value-based healthcare in Bangladesh. And while our conversation is largely focused on Silvana's home country, the lessons she shares on both the challenges to value-based healthcare and on her early success with Prava Health can be applicable to many other countries across Asia Pacific and globally. Silvana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really excited to be here with you today, Tony. So you have a fascinating background in terms of the journey to becoming the CEO of a business that's changing primary care and tackling the challenges of primary care in Bangladesh. And I want to unpack that one sentence into the entirety of our conversation here. Our audience is from across Asia Pacific, but also global. They may or may not know the dynamics of Bangladesh. So give us the high level. It's the eighth most populated country in the world. What else should we know about the country overall? The fact that it's the eighth most populous country in the world is surprising to many people, actually. Many people don't realize that it's a tiny landmass the size of South Korea. And in that landmass is 165 to 170 or more million people, depending on how you count it. It's three times the population density of India, actually, which is quite incredible to think about for those people who have visited India. And it's a really exciting country. It was um, born out of a bloody civil war with West Pakistan in 1971. And at that time was described by Henry Kissinger, who was then the Secretary of State of the United States, as a basket case. And since that time has now come to be one of the fastest growing economies in the world, growing consistently six to eight percent over um, the last 20 years, taking out 2020. But even in 2020, against the backdrop of the global recession, grew at four percent by Bloomberg is one of the most resilient economies of 2020. So it's a really exciting market. The growth has really been fueled by a middle class that is now 40 million people. And overall, about 36 percent of the population is in cities the largest being DACA, along with 10 others. So what's the broad landscape of primary care? How well covered are individuals in this rural versus urban split? It's a great question. And it's a really important one that many people don't understand that well. If you look at Bangladesh from the perspective of the health sector and, and from the perspective of the progress that's been made in the last generation, it's quite impressive, actually. On social development indicators, Bangladesh is doing better than any other country in the region. Life expectancy is 72 years, which is higher than parts of New York City, one of the richest parts of one of the richest countries in the world. And that really has been achieved through investments in primary care for the masses in the rural setting, but also even in the urban slum setting. And a lot of that has been done through partnerships from the government with the NGO sector, organizations like BRAC. Grameen Bank, organizations like the Gates Foundation, by really investing in primary care in terms of improving vaccination rates, reducing 
maternal, newborn, and child mortality rate, really reducing deaths, to be honest with you. And so the interesting thing that's happened is you do have this fairly well-established and well-functioning primary care system that exists for the masses, but for anything beyond the most basic primary care, and by that I mean a delivery or a vaccination, even the masses are choosing to access the private system. Because although the primary care system exists and is quite strong, there are long wait times, it's not as well-funded as it could be. So even the masses will pay to access the private system. This is a big difference between India. In India, in the cities, you have some of the best healthcare in the world. Arguably, if you have money, you can access quite good healthcare. In the rural setting in India, it's arguably some of the worst in the world. Whereas in Bangladesh, it's not bad in the rural setting. The problem is it's not much better in the urban setting. And even on the private side of the system, care has not evolved and advanced to the level that you see in India and in other of Asia's major super cities. So I would say that's the landscape. The really interesting thing that I'll also point out is that South Asia, unlike most of the rest of the world, most of the health spending is coming from the private sector. So India, 67%, Bangladesh, 72% of health spending that's coming from the private sector. And so that is a reflection of the fact that the private sector is providing most services and that even the masses, as I mentioned, are accessing private sector care for many of their needs. So it sounds like there's a reasonable level of basic care available to everyone. How about affordability? We've made reference to India, where the average person there has a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs. What about in Bangladesh? There's a lot of -of out-of-pocket for Bangladesh as well. There's no national health insurance coverage. And there's a big gap between you have virtually free care in the public system and the government system. And then you have very expensive care in the private system, by and large. There isn't much that's targeting that middle-class segment of the population, which is important also because as you have these people who are graduating from the masses into middle-income status, which, as I mentioned, you now have 40 million Bangladeshis who are middle-income, most of whom were not a generation ago, they don't want to access the public system. They don't want to access that. They want to access the private system, but they're having to spend, in many cases, exorbitant amounts to access private care. So there aren't very many providers that are targeting that middle-class segment of the population at a price point that's affordable to them. And as a result, you actually have thousands of Bangladeshis that are even traveling to India every day to access care that's not just maybe perhaps affordable to them, but actually better quality. So that is another big aspect of what's driven me, to be honest, to build my company, as as we've talked about in the past, which is that people are traveling because they understand what quality healthcare should look like, and they don't feel like they're being able to access in their own country. And we'll get to that in a second in terms of what you're doing for Prava. I want to get to your transition. We started this talking about your background and focusing on policy and chasing impact. Tell us a little bit about that journey that then ultimately led you to say, I'm going to go from trying to develop policy to actually build a company to support individuals in primary care. What was your personal journey? As I mentioned, I worked in international law. I worked in international development, worked in U.S. foreign policy, had worked at the World Bank, had some really amazing experiences for which I'm extraordinarily grateful that gave me a real perspective on what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, or I guess initially what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life. I I spent time at big law firms and really interesting work, usually advising investors who were investing in emerging and frontier markets, helping them to manage disputes, international disputes, helping them to consider whether they could manage the risk of entering into a new market. And when I was at the World Bank, actually directly involved in development work, U.S. foreign policy as well. But I didn't feel directly connected to the impact of the work that I was doing. And I always was left with this yearning that I wanted to be more directly connected to that impact. And when you work as an international advocate, when you work in human rights, 
progress is slow. And I just felt like I wanted to build something and I wanted to see the impact of that. I was born and raised in the United States, actually, which is an important point. I had never lived in Bangladesh before. I'd spent a few months at a time visiting throughout my life. But my visits to Bangladesh, even as a child, are actually what inspired my interest in international development. And in my lifetime, just to observe the trajectory of the country that I described, it's happened in my lifetime. Really, I was born in the late 70s. The country was founded in 1971. Every time I visited, I saw progress. And I was visiting Bangladesh for a family wedding in the early 2010s. And my mom had to be hospitalized for a basic appendectomy. And my family is lucky enough that we were able to actually access the VIP suite of one of the fancy private hospitals in Dhaka, the capital city. And despite that, the surgery was delayed by 10 hours. And the care that we received was quite disappointing. To describe it as care is insulting to the word care. And this was just really eye-opening to me. We ended up actually having to airlift my mother to Bangkok, where she had another surgery. And then a year later, she had another surgery in the United States. And it just really struck me that not everyone has that access to be able to take their mom to Bangkok. And who knows what would have happened if we couldn't have done that, to be honest, because of what was going on and that nobody was being able to give us answers. And so I realized as someone who had observed the growth of the economy that despite the fact that there were tens of millions of middle-class Bangladeshis who could afford and understood quality healthcare, no amount of money appeared to offer you the opportunity to access quality and world-class healthcare in Bangladesh. And that's the problem that I really wanted to try to solve. So first off, sorry about the whole experience that happened with your mother. It's really admirable how you took that and brought together your experiences and found your calling. I'm a huge advocate and believer that the people who are going to change healthcare are the ones who view it as a mission and will break through barriers, break down walls, create collaborations and co-create with others. And that's something that from a distance and from the conversations we've had together, I've always admired about your resolve. And now to know why you have that resolve, thank you for sharing that story. I really appreciate it. So let's come back to the problem you're trying to solve. And let's define it in the context of there's a middle class who wants quality, as you've said, and it's a growing group of people not available. And they also don't have the level of wealth to really pursue global health care. Step into their shoes and describe to us what is the typical patient journey and what's broken right now? Why don't they get quality? The care is really uncoordinated and the patient is not at the center of care. So what might happen is you might visit a doctor in his private chambers and she or he might say, all right, you need to do this test and you need to take this medication. So you end up figuring out a lab close by to you where you're going to go and get the test done, then figuring out where you can access the medication and going and visiting the pharmacy to do that, then waiting a day and go and pick up the physical record at the lab where you did your reports. And then you have to follow up with the doctor and share that report with the doctor. So it's a very disjointed experience. It really is not centered around the patient, unfortunately. There's very little technology traditionally in most healthcare experiences in Bangladesh right now. The other thing is, and I keep coming back to quality, is that there is this lack of basic quality infrastructure in many countries, countries that have grown very quickly in the last 50 years, there is actually only one internationally accredited lab in the country. People spend a lot of time in Bangladesh complaining about the doctors and how they don't know what they're doing and they're misdiagnosing patients. I don't think that's necessarily their fault. I think there are many good doctors in Bangladesh, but if there's only one internationally accredited lab and they can't rely on the quality of the lab results that are being presented to them, then 
they're inevitably going to make misdiagnosis. And so what I'll describe to you when I first moved to Bangladesh to start the company, I observed it in my own team members that a colleague might take his mother to get her blood work done. She's not feeling well. We should do some tests. They'll get some blood work done. One of the parameters will be irregular and they won't believe it. They won't believe that it's actually irregular. So then he'll take his mom back to five more labs to test it and see if he can figure out what the actual accurate result is. It's extraordinarily inefficient, but also extremely draining and frustrating, right? If you have a sick family member and you're having to go around to five different labs and get their blood work drawn and then wait for the results and then figure out, compare them and try to figure out what the accurate thing is, you know, it's a truly inefficient system. Across the region, we see 10 to 15% of drugs are actually counterfeit. And so that's another issue. A lot of people are accessing healthcare actually from their local pharmacy. The local pharmacy may or may not be staffed full-time with the pharmacist on site. So oftentimes a person, they're asking a diagnosis, someone who may or may not have even graduated high school. And so a lot of people are just accessing care at that level. And doctors are overstretched and spending an average of actually 48 seconds with each patient. It was a study that the British Medical Journal did a couple of years ago, a global study of 67 or 68 countries. Well, this was second to last on the list by the amount of time that doctors are spending with patients. The only country where doctors spend less time with patients is Pakistan, which was 45 seconds. And so across the board, it creates a very disjointed experience for patients. What are the reasons behind this? One of the reasons I really think is that in terms of the development of the private sector, it's happened very quickly. There's not enough regulation. and There's so much excess demand in the market for private care that even the market isn't holding these facilities accountable. And so what we're trying to do is really offer a one-stop shop patient experience that's centered around a better and more elegant experience for the patient, as well as a better health outcome. So to summarize that, then it sounds like there's at least five things that aren't working really well. One is the overall ecosystem is not necessarily up to global standards, labs being an example. General inefficiencies, second. Pharmacies don't work as well as they could, including counterfeits and training for pharmacists. And then providers don't have enough time with patients. And then there's regulation challenges. So those are, to me, each one of those is like a lifetime in trying to fix a system. Yeah. Thanks for painting that picture, by the way. That's really helpful. I'll highlight just one other point that's embedded in everything that I described. And there are a lot of perverse incentives embedded in the system. And that's also a reflection of, I think, current lack of regulation. Doctors are incentivized to order tests. Doctors are incentivized to order drugs. They're incentivized to convert outpatients to inpatients. The person you meet when you enter into a hospital has been given a target to convert some percentage of the people that she's checking in to an inpatient. Once you're hospitalized, The doctors are given a target to keep the patient in the hospital for a minimum of three days. So the system is run like a corporation in the worst sense, in a way that's not aligned with the values of the patient. And this is where we talk about value-based healthcare. We need to be inspired by these models that align our incentives as providers with patients. Because in my view, although the incentives that exist in the system might create short-term gains for the provider it's not going to engender loyalty necessarily. It's not going to engender long-term value. And so I think we need to start thinking more holistically about our relationships with our patients as providers. That's a wonderful summary for why we need value-based healthcare. So now fast forward. You found that there's many things that you could solve with Prava. You've raised your first amount of money to build the business. Tell us, what's the overall vision for where you're taking Prava? 
And how, how did you then select the first problem to solve, given that there's so many you could have chosen from? We want to build the best patient experience in Bangladesh. We want to build the best healthcare company in Bangladesh. It's a very broad vision. We want to be our patient's trusted partner in health. And that encompasses many things. How do we go about doing that in answer to your second question? To be honest with you, we realized we couldn't just solve one problem at a time. Because of the challenges endemic in the current scenario, I was really attracted to the concept of primary care. I was really attracted to the concept of a family doctor who really engages with the patient in managing their entire healthcare journey. But I realized that if I wanted to build a brand that was really grounded in trust, and I really wanted to build a long-term relationship with my patients, I couldn't afford to outsource the testing because of the reasons that I've described. I couldn't afford to outsource the drugs. And so what we've actually built is an integrated outpatient care model. Within our system, we have family doctors, women's health, pediatrics, dentistry, ophthalmology, outpatient specialties, outpatient procedures, as well as we do in-house all of the diagnostic testing. We have six in-house labs that have been set up according to international standards, including a PCR lab that's currently very busy doing COVID testing in Bangladesh. We do the full range of imaging in-house and we have in-house pharmacy as well. Now, the interesting thing is also around the time that I started the company, I moved to Bangladesh in 2015. I had the idea in 2014. And around that time, everybody was obsessed with Uberov. And oh, why don't you just build Uberov for healthcare? Based on all the problems that I described to you, I realized technology alone could not solve the problems of healthcare in Bangladesh. And that although I'm sure there are promising business models to be built around that, I didn't think that I could earn my patients' trust by helping to connect them to doctors who are spending 48 seconds with them, to labs that aren't running tests at an international standard, and to pharmacies that are selling them counterfeit drugs. And so I realized I had to build the infrastructure piece. And then underpinning all of that is a layer of technology. So we've brought Bangladesh's first fully integrated hospital information system, which features the first patient app in the country where patients can access their medical records, they can book appointments. And these are very rudimentary concepts from a global perspective. But in the region, most patients are still carrying their medical records around in bags. So through our app to have all their records in one place. And if they bring us that bag of their life before Brava, we'll scan and store it for them to really promote a continuity of care, both for the patient, but also for the provider. So they have the full history there. So in other words, you tackled a lot of problems at once maybe broke the the credo of saying, be really focused and gets good at one thing really fast, which most people will say is the lifeblood of successful startups. But this is healthcare we're talking about. So I think that in and of itself, I think you've encapsulated why it's so hard to communicate to the investment community why healthcare can be a little bit different than in other types of investing. And it's because in your case, you had so many things that were intertwined, you kind of didn't have a choice. And it makes logical sense when you've explained it that way. And at the same time, I also really like the way that you brought two themes in, which are critical, which is trust and that it's tech enabled, not tech led. And that is where this podcast is about digital health. And I've been in healthcare for 20 years. And I've been a skeptic in a lot of ways around saying exactly the same thing you've said, which is a tech solution alone isn't enough 
to be able to solve a problem. You have to have thought through the entire way that you impact the journey of an individual and how you change it from the current state to a future state. So to go a little bit deeper into this now, you built an integrated model, fantastic, and COVID hits. So tell us about Prava pre-COVID and then what happened during this period and how it's changed the business overall. Thank you for that. It's been a transformative phase for us, for me personally and for the organization. I think that I'll just share in January of 2020, we had about 45,000 patients. Today, we're almost going to register our 200,000th patient in the next couple of days, actually, as we speak. And so it's an amazing moment where we've had the opportunity to step up and serve the community during a public health crisis. And I'm really proud that we've been able to rise to that challenge because it's a burden that we take very seriously. It's really accelerated our digital product offerings. We always had a vision to expand beyond the patient app that we launched in 2018. We opened our doors in February 2018. We launched the first patient app in the country in April of that year. And we had a future vision and we had already mapped out a roadmap that, oh, in 2021, we'll roll out telemedicine. We'll think about e-pharma. Well, COVID hit and everything got pre-pumped. So by the end of March, 2020, we rolled out telemedicine. That same month, we we were the first private provider in the country to partner with the government on telemedicine. We rolled out e-pharma in early May. And then we became the first private lab to get approval to do COVID testing that same month. And all of these things came together at the same time. And around this time, everyone in the world was scrambling. We didn't understand the virus as well as we do now. And everyone was wondering, what's the country like Bangladesh going to do with only a few hundred ICU beds? It's going to overwhelm the country. And so we were approached by UN agencies and other donors. Oh, why can we convert your facility into uh, an ICU? And we use some of the rooms for that. But we were very steadfast and focused at that time that as an outpatient provider, our vision has always been to keep people out of the hospital. In Across Asia, care is so hospital-centric. But what we're seeing and what you spend a lot of time thinking about, as well as I do, care is shifting globally from hospitals and into clinics and into home. And so we wanted to focus on that into clinics and into homes. I said, we as a management team, we don't want to convert our center into an ICU. We want to continue serving patients who need outpatient care. We want to serve the 80% of COVID patients who can be cared for without having to access hospital care. And so we immediately jumped into doing that. And we stayed really focused on that. We built a tool for remote management of COVID, actually. It's a Facebook Messenger-based tool that in our pilots has seen results reducing hospitalization rates nationally from 51% to 14% through use of the tool. And so we really have always stayed true to that vision. But it's been an amazing time. And we're currently in the middle of a surge across South Asia and are stretched once again. I would have to say, like many healthcare systems, initially for the first surge, we were not prepared for the kinds of volumes that we saw. We learned a lot from that experience and we're better equipped this time around, thankfully. Well, I'm glad that you're there to help as many people as you're able to touch and to grow from 45K people that you're dealing with to 200,000 people to hopefully 2 million, 20 million, and the number of people you can influence and support. Inshallah, as we say, (laughs) God willing. I can't wait to see that future become a reality. We have so many other topics that we could go into. 
Unfortunately, I think we'll probably save that for a future podcast episode. I do want to ask you one more question here for this particular one, where you've described a lot of challenges, problems, and what Prav is doing. You also raised money recently. And so you've now created more roadmaps and growth opportunities for the business. Where are you going to focus for the next 12 to 24 months in directing this business to create additional impact? Because you've already created impact. So where else are you going to create that impact now? So we have a lot of work ahead of us. You're very kind to say that we have achieved impact, and we certainly have. But from my perspective, we're just getting started. We have raised a little bit of money. We're back in the market raising a Series B right now, actually, for further expansion. Immediately, we're really focused actually on deepening the digital footprint. And that includes by rolling out a patient super app. I mentioned that in addition to the patient app that we launched, we rolled out other digital products like telemedicine and e-pharma, as well as virtual primary care and disease management tools. Those are all standalone right now. And so one of our immediate focuses to build a patient super app so that in the same way that we have a one-stop physical shop for our services at Brava, you have a one-stop shop on your phone for all of your healthcare needs. So that's definitely one of our immediate strategic focuses. I think the second piece is really looking at clinical protocols and how to automate those using technology to make clinical decision-making easier for our providers. And even to look at how you can automate interactions with patients, as we've done for COVID management, to help patients to take better control of their own healthcare management. Because again, we as providers don't consider ourselves to be at the center of the patient's care. The patient is at the center of her or his care, and the patient needs to be the best champion for that. And so really building tools so that providers and patients can work together more seamlessly to prevent hospitalizations and to make lifestyles both better and longer. I admire the work that you're doing, and thank you for sharing all those details. It's nice to see how you've already built a sustainable, profitable business that shows that with digital health technology brought into the right ecosystem, being able to build something that can survive, be able to create something that has the right financial economics for investors to say, this investment makes sense. Kudos to you and your team. And I look forward to following your journey and our future conversation where we'll dig in further into Prava. And thank you so much for your time. No, thank you so much for having me, Tony. I'm really excited. I think it's such an incredible time in healthcare and excited for what we'll have to talk about the next time and really have enjoyed other guests that you've brought on. So thank you. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap on this episode. Please look at our show notes for links to Silvana and Prava Health. Before I go, here's how you, our audience, can support us. Please share this podcast with others. And if you follow or subscribe, you'll get updates on new episodes and other content. You can also email me at apac at digitalhealthtoday.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes. Through my website, www.toniestrella.com, you can learn more about my fiction writing and my other healthcare work, including my white papers and other podcasts. You can also look for me on Twitter, WeChat, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. And finally, please visit our website at digitalhealthtoday.com to hear other episodes from our podcasting team and my earlier episodes, including season one. This show was researched and written by Taliosa and produced along with mission-based media. The sound and music was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening. Hey, Dan Kendall here. Thanks for tuning in to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. 
This episode may be over, but there's plenty more where this came from. Just visit our website to find other great shows featuring digital health leaders and innovators. Find us at digitalhealthtoday.com. That's digitalhealthtoday.com.